Welcome to the AP Talks podcast, a new series of conversations by Audemars Piguet about fine watchmaking, heritage, and the cultural space in which the company has evolved, all told through the expert eyes of AP people and guests. I am Bill Prince, writer and journalist, and today we will be demystifying the Royal Oak's creation process, its reception, commercial success, and extraordinary destiny with my guest, Sebastian Vivas, Heritage and Museum Director at Audemars Piguet. Thank you for joining, Sebastian. Hi, Bill. In a sense, I feel you are detective in an inquiry into something that happened over 50 years ago, and yet we feel we're very familiar with the story that we perhaps haven't got all the facts right around. So it gives me great pleasure to start by asking you, when you came to Rodomar Piguet, I believe in 2012, what did you find in terms of an archive, and what did you set out to achieve in those first few months? I must say that I was quite ignorant of the history of this icon, and I had to start learning. Mr. Martin Verley was the director of the museum at the time. He had been working in the company for 40 years. He was a watchmaker, then he was uh, in charge of the distribution of the watches for half of the world. So he knew everyone, he knew everything, and he had an incredible memory. My problem was that I could not get his brain into mine, so I had to learn, and I had to spend time into the archives, also interviewing him, interviewing other people who had lived this history, who knew about not only the Rayolo, but the history of the whole company, and I had to start building a team, because doing that alone was not that easy. How quickly did you start to uncover some of the unforced errors that have entered the myth of the Royal Oaks creation. I'm thinking principally of the date around the famous night during which Gerald Genta first drew the Royal Oak. It really took time. We did a very deep and intense study about the history of the complicated wristwatch made by Audemars Piguet during the 20th century that led to the publication of a book that has become hopefully a reference book in this field. We started to learn about the history of the Royal Oak nearly by chance by finding an order of prototype, a letter that had been signed by Gérald Jonta, that was the first surprise because he had never been employed by Audemars Piguet, sent to Favre Perret, the case maker, and ordering four prototypes. That was in June 1970. How can Gérald Jonta order a prototype before having drawn the, the first sketch of the Royal Oak? And the name Royal Oak appeared on the letter. And the case numbers were verified in the archives. So that was the first surprise. What do we do? Did it really start one year before it was expected? So in a sense, you knew that there was a detective trail that needed to be followed. There are not so many evidences in the archives that tell the story that makes it possible to verify the exact date. But when everybody agrees, it starts to become meaningful. And what we found out is that uh, three agents, Carlo de Marquis, Charles Doroux and Charles Botti, the owners of the distribution in Italy, Switzerland and France, met probably for the first time with uh, Georges Gollet at Basel Fair in April 1970, and they had signed a contract of distribution a few months before. It had been a long negotiation between the small company Audemars Piguet, 80 people at the time, and the largest group of watchmaking in Switzerland, SSIH, with uh, 15,000 points of sale. This is David and Goliath, in a way. And these three agents 
asked George Gollet to create something unseen that would be luxury, but also sport and young and uh, forward thinking and in steel and in large quantities. What happened is that George Gollet called Mr. Jonta and he asked, can you please do something unseen? A sports watch would be in steel, but luxury at the same time. And we need it for tomorrow morning. Of course, when I heard this story, I did not believe it. How can you design such a masterpiece with this level of refinement complexity in a few hours? No, this is mythology. But the thing is that it could be true. We actually met with uh, Evelyn Janta and she told us that she used to see her husband working every day designing watches. He has designed watches for 40 years, nearly one or more watch per day. So this was the way he used to work. And he would draw the watch and keep the drawing or destroy it, but never would he retouch it. He did it in one night because he used to work by night with a tie, always. Very elegant uh, designer. And uh, the day after, he could show this drawing, which is extremely close to the, the final 5402 uh, watch that was presented two years later. Before we come on to the naming of the watch and its initial launch and, and future success, so many elements had to come into play and be perfected by a relatively large number of people. So could you tell us a little bit about how you feel that journey went? I think we have to start by paying tribute to all the partners, all the talents, all the company who participated to the birth of this watch. Uh, we can start with the movement maker, the blank maker, Le Coultre and Company. Janta has drawn the rail oak around one existing, but very new at the moment, movement, legendary calibre 2121. And then building this uh, extremely complex monohull showcase in steel, uh, he asked Mr. Jacques-Louis Audemars, who was in charge of the production, he is the descendant, uh, the grandson of uh, the founder of the company. He asked him gently if Mr. Audemars would accept that uh, Mr. Jonta would manage this uh, development because he, he knew that it was so special and Mr. Audemars accepted. So Mr. Jonta went to Favre Perret in La Chaux-de-Fonds. Favre Perret is a famous uh, case maker. He has made one of the finest cases in gold, but had never worked steel before. And what Jonta told us is that when Favre Perret saw the complexity of the case, they said, no, that's absolutely impossible. It will never happen in steel. Maybe in gold. Let's try. So Jota said, okay, let's do the prototypes in white gold so that it will look like steel, but it will be feasible. Then the same story uh, was again a big challenge for the Stern company who made the dials by having saved a few old machines, having learned how to handle and how to master them. They found a way to create one of the most complex dial ever, the tapisserie uh, rail oak dial. Same story for the bracelet with Geffrère. So you may ask, uh, so what did Audemars Piguet if uh, everybody did the case, the movement, etc.? Audemars Piguet was the chief of orchestra in a way. 
And we should remember that at a time before market research was core and central to the watchmaking industry as it perhaps is today. We should also note that, of course, Gerald Genta left the employment of Odomar Piguet between that vivid and uh, sacred evening when he first drew the Royal Oak and its launch in 1972, during which time certain elements of the storytelling has inevitably been channeled through both its design and the shape of the bezel and the idea that it was first inspired by the porthole of an English battleship, and also the name Royal Oak, which, as we know, has shared its uh, heritage with King Charles II hiding in an oak tree, and again, a line of um, destroyers built under the, for the British Navy. Well, actually, they could fit, but only under the condition that Gérald Jonta could travel in time. <laughs> Explained. We don't know if he could. <laughs> <laughs> but presumably he did not travel in time, so he could not have been inspired by uh, the Royal Oak battleship porthole shape uh, before this name was chosen for the watch. And the name was not chosen before December 1971. The watch having been drawn more than a, a year before is probably not the most important source of inspiration for the shape of the watch. But it's a meaningful name that was chosen by Carlo De Marchi, the Italian agent. Actually, the inspiration was a child memory. Gérald Jonta used to live in Geneva, and he saw a diver with a helmet, a very heavy uh, scaphander, diving into the lake. He was particularly impressed by the fact that the diver owed his life to the quality of the gaskets and uh, the water resistance of this super heavy uh, costume or scaphander. And he wanted to protect the treasure, just like the human's life. And the treasure was the mechanical movement, the self-winding, thinnest mechanical movement in the world, the symbol of uh, high-end watchmaking in a world that was uh, nearly about to face the quartz uh, crisis. And uh, to protect that, he needed something that would be elegant and highly resistant. The case monohull with a huge gasket inside and eight holes that go through the whole case with the bolts underneath which compress uh, the, the, the gasket makes the watch 100 meters waterproof and makes it also very expressive. When you see the screws on the bezel, you feel that there is something mechanically resistant. And this is the expression, I think, of the scaphander. Gerald Genta, at one point, believed he misunderstood what Georges Gaulet had asked him to do, and that was to produce, in his mind, a water-resistant watch, whereas the record holds that perhaps Mr. Gaulet hadn't suggested it be water-resistant, simply be a sports watch suitable to be worn every day in every environment. So, in a sense, a possible mishearing from Mr. Genta created this extraordinary timepiece and what we now see is a very disruptive watch. And then we come to the launch in 1972. And one of the maintained myths is that the watch itself was not successful at launch. Do you deem it to be unsuccessful or do you deem it to be a victim of the complication and the slow pickup reliant on the number of pieces that came to market? When I started at AP in 2012, everybody agreed that the Royal Oak was a commercial failure at the beginning. And that it took time before the Italian market finally understood the interest and the beauty of this watch. 
what we actually uh, found in the archives doesn't tell exactly the same story. From April 1972 to the end of the year, AP delivered nearly 500 watches. Same model, same material, same dial, same movement. That was a world record for the company. 500 identical watches. That doesn't mean it was a success because then the retailers, the agents, had to sell the watch to the final clients. So the big challenging year is 1973. Over 500 are sold again. And the year after, 600. And it continues. And then the watch is untouched for four years. We are in 2022. Imagine you launch a new collection now and you don't touch it until 2026. Would be difficult today. If it had been a failure, the watch would have disappeared from the catalog after one or two years. Mr. Goulet was very, very clever. He gave time to the Royal Oak to conquer the world. And then in 1976, the second interpretation of the Royal Oak is made for ladies. Small size, 29 millimeters, with a self-winding movement, with a steel case, with the visible screws, etc. All the codes that were used for the man are uh, reinterpreted in smaller uh, size, so more difficult to make, of course, for ladies. And that opens all the doors the year after the gold is integrated in the collection, two tones, middle size, etc. What you were saying is that 39 millimeters was interpreted only once during the first 20 years of the company. The jumbo, so-called jumbo because oversized at the time, in fact, was kind of replaced by the core collection, 35 and 36 millimeters until the beginning of the year 2000. Many people have forgotten that the Royal Oak was much smaller than today at that time. All of this brings to light a design that seems to be incredibly providential. It's a design for the future. It's a design for all times. How has that been achieved? The success is probably the change of the society. People born after the Second World War wanted a different world. We have seen that in, in culture, in cinema, in architecture, in fashion. Watchmaking was a bit late in this process. A watch was either classical, in gold with complications, or ultra-thin, highly refined, or sporty, in steel, resistant, but not that well refined and not that well decorated. So the Royal Oak was the first to join these two worlds. And of course... It was followed because it made complete sense. For the first time, a man could wear a watch by being uh, the chairman of a board of director for a large company and with his Apollo shirt sailing uh, in the afternoon. So that made a big difference. So in a sense, it was a fortune teller. It, it almost sensed where the world was going next. And it was prepared, and it also prepared itself to be ready for that next evolution. And again, I reflect on the Royal Oak Offshore and its arrival into the 90s, which was, a, I suppose, a much more an extreme, aggressive, energetic, action-packed environment than perhaps the decade of its launch. And it neatly replaced some of the more above-the-line aspirational tropes of the 80s for which the watch also sat very comfortably around. But we come into the year 2000, as you mentioned, and the launch of the 15202, which is really restates the significance of the 
the jumbo 39mm, the centre of the collection, as its core of the collection. Do we owe everything to that single watch in understanding the power and depth of the Royal Oak Collection? Or are there other models that have contributed to our belief system that this is a very important watch? You know, the Royal Oak bears the name of a tree, and a tree has a trunk and branches. The trunk is a core collection, and the core collection uh, has been, at the beginning, Royal Jumbo, then the 35 and 36 millimeters, and became once again from the year 2010, it's very early that it comes back to uh, 39 millimeters, Jumbo, 15, uh, 202. Meanwhile, there were so many interpretations. There are thousands of different Rayloks. So Rayloks is a form language in a way that also gave birth not only to the offshore and to, to the Rayloks concept, but to many other collections uh, in other uh, companies in the Swiss uh, watchmaking world. So... It, it really started something completely new and completely fresh, and that's why it is still as desirable as originally. So, to come back to the, the 15-202, not many people know that the manufacturer, Le Coultre and Company, the blank maker of Calibre 2120, during the 1990s, decided to stop the production of this Calibre and informed Omar Piguet that... Uh, Due to the low quantities that were uh, ordered, there was no reason to continue. That could have been the death of the Rayaluk Jumbo. The reaction at AP was opposite. Let's save the Rayaluk Jumbo. Let's come back with something that is uh, renewed, that is young enough. That, because there had been 14802 and there had been 15002 during the 90s that were niche, that were not that uh, popular and that visible, although collectors today are really looking for some, as we do actually. And um, they decided to renew the Rayog Jumbo, to verticalize the production in Audemars Piguet workshops of the Calibre 2121. And meanwhile, it happened the same thing with the dial, uh, which a Stern creation decided to not to produce anymore because they closed their door. So this was in, uh, verticalized, and this was kind of saved by AP, and this became slowly a popular model. But in 2012, a Rayloc Jumbo was less popular than a Rayloc Offshore. How did you see the company changing since your time in 2012? And what has your department grown to become? And how do you think it reinforces the storytelling around the Royal Oak Watch? Thank you for the question, Bill. Now I feel I'm very old. <laughs> Surely not. The watch is forever young, so anyone close to the watch retains a, a youthfulness. So 10 years ago... I had the chance to build a team, hiring archivists, historians, uh, welcoming the restoration workshop in the heritage team. And by adding expertise, passionate people, finally we created a dynamic that was looking for information and uh, looking for sharing this information. We started with a complication book. We made a brand new museum that was open two years ago. Another way to share the, the content, but we 
seriously started, I would say, three years ago to study the history of the rail oak. And we have started publishing the result of what we have found on a platform that is named uh, AP Chronicles. It's an evolving platform. Uh, there are more or less 12 uh, articles dedicated to various themes, such as the genesis, the case, the dials, the techniques, the introduction of gold, the first ladies, rail oak, etc. And that will evolve Hopefully, we will cover the whole history of the rare look and we will also communicate about every single model uh, that has been made. And probably this way of communicating, of being transparent, is expected by the collectors and appreciated. The AP Chronicles, as you describe it, is an extraordinary piece of work. The fact that it's made open source, in effect, so anyone can uh, gain access to it through the website, means that you are... Very happy to share a great deal of information that the Swiss watch industry wasn't given to sharing too widely, perhaps. I wonder how you feel its voyage into the future looks. How do you think it might develop? And how much more information do you think there is still to glean about the first 50 years? If the rail oak is younger than ever, it's because the people who reinvent it every day uh, share the same passion, the same fire for creating uh, an unexpected parts. And I had the privilege to see a few of the future projects. I can tell you it's really, really promising. So it will continue. Is there something that you would love to know about the development of the Royal Oak that you don't currently know? We have just started. We have covered more or less the first 10 years of the Royal Oak because there is always more to discover and to share. At the moment, we are doing a research about the first Royal Oak perpetual calendars. Once again, we thought we knew, but in the archives, I found a photocopy dated 1981 from Epi, New York, with a drawing of a Royal Oak perpetual calendar, jam set, three years before. We have to investigate. As we discussed earlier, Gerald Genta, Evelyn told us, he didn't keep anything. He drew, executed, refined, and then reimagined, either discarded or placed in a drawer. So am I right in believing that the museum now holds the original drawing that uh, was created by Gerald Genta of the Royal Oak? Yeah, this is one of the most important recent acquisition of the Audemars Piguet Museum, uh, the original drawing of uh, the Royal Oak. If you look at it closely, there are small holes made by a compass, not only in the center, but what I found... They are extremely small holes on the outer bezel that may have been the one used to create the opposite curved octagon bezel. So we are starting to learn about the way Gérald Jonta used to work and how he did create this specific model just by having the drawing that we, of course, we will uh, share with our visitors uh, very soon. There are people within the company who are living, breathing witnesses to this moment and perhaps in another 20 years would not be available to interview. So was that a primary concern of yours to capture the oral history of this moment there and then? And how were you able to do that? 
the work that you have done to bring the story around the creation of the Royal Oak has really given a huge lift to anyone who's been trying to understand how Swiss watchmaking has developed in the last 50 years. There must be many more stories yet to tell. Jacqueline Dimier, who took Gerald Genter's original design and managed, against all odds, to shrink it to 29 millimeters. Exactly. If Gerald Genter is the father, Jacqueline Dimier is the mother of the Rilo collection. She's the one who has transformed this radical design into a very open and creative playground for design, techniques, mechanics, colors, gem setting whatsoever. Do you continue to see that familial sense around the company today and its decisions and how it is celebrating 50 years of the Royal Oak? Yes, Audemars Piguet is a very, very special company. People have strong personalities. It's like a family, you know. Family uh, can also be complicated, but everything comes from the heart. And when you don't agree on something, you can say it. There's still a lot of familiarity and a lot of fun. And this is something I've never seen anywhere else, and uh, I think it will not change. Well, Sebastian, I must congratulate you on the work of you and your team in bringing the story of the Royal Oak to life this year. And I look forward to many more chapters. Let's meet in 10 years. Done. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the second AP Talks podcast. We hope you enjoyed discovering more about the Royal Oak and its unique journey. If you wish to learn more, head over to our AP Talks video playlist, available on our YouTube channel and other social networks. We look forward to exploring new topics around fine watchmaking, heritage and culture with you through our AP Talks in the next few months. <laughs> <laughs>